Well, good morning to everybody. We are so glad you guys are here with us today on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, any father figures in someone's life. Uh, And so a couple of announcements before we get started. Yes, I'm wearing a boot. No, I don't know what's wrong with my foot. I'll find out this week. All right. It has nothing to do with middle school camp, um, but I was at middle school camp all week, but I don't know. It just hurts really, really bad. So uh, if you are a podiatrist, just come to my office afterwards and we'll take a look. All right. So um, so 4th of July is coming up uh, in two weeks. And on 4th of July, we realize that's a crazy time. A lot of people are vacationing, busy day. So what our plan right now is to only have one service on 4th of July. That'll be at 1030. And then afterwards, we're going to have a cookout in the parking lot, free food for everybody. Uh, so first and second service will be combined that Sunday, and we'll just have one service at 1030. Um, so it'll be packed in here. Um, and so good thing all the restrictions are lifted. And so uh, we'll have that, and then we'll have a cookout afterwards. So make sure to take some plans, grab a hot dog, a hamburger on your way out, to hang out for a few minutes on 4th of July. And so that's coming up in a few weeks. There's a lot of other stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks and months. Download the Journey app if you haven't already done that to kind of find out everything that's going on um, with everything going on here at Journey. And obviously, as we get into fall, even more stuff's going to happen. So it's the best time to get connected and all of that type of stuff. Now, today we are doing kind of a standalone message. Um, We just came out of this series, Prestige, and today being Father's Day, I want to take some time and address some of the men in the room, but really anybody um, in the room could um, learn something from this story. It's one of the most unique stories. Um, It's one of these stories that like, um, we tell our kids to read the Bible, and they should, but this is one of those stories you don't want them reading, okay? At least not yet, okay? But it's a fascinating story, and the reason I love this story, and I love the fact that it's in the Bible, is it's a very real story. It's a very authentic story. Um, there's a lot of messiness in this story, as we're going to see. But what I love about that is that is how we are. We're messy. And sometimes we make good choices, sometimes we make bad choices. And especially as fathers or parents or leaders or authority figures, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. Um, and what we often want when we read the Bible is like this nice little neat story with all these tidy lines where everything works out, everybody gets a puppy, and it's just this great thing. But the reality is that's not the book that we get. It's not the story we get, because we get the story of us. And and then today, we're going to learn some lessons. It's a cautionary tale of what can happen as fathers and leaders and really anybody um, of things when, when we allow things to go out of whack, when we don't step in sometimes and maybe do some of the things we should do or say some things we should say, when we don't own up to our mistakes And then we're going to end with talking about one of the principles, I think, is the ongoing theme in the Bible. But in this story specifically, if there'd just been a timeout taken at any point in this story, and this thing that we're going to talk about was offered, it may have changed everything. So today we're going to talk about the story of David. And I am going to basically give you probably, I don't know, like 15 years of history in about 15 minutes. And so we're going to go fast. And so pay attention. If you're on the front row, I may spit a little bit. It'll be okay. And so uh, this is the story of David. Now, when we think about David, the things that come to mind are a couple things. First of all, we think of David and Goliath, which is part of the story. We also think of the famous line where it talks about David being a man after God's own heart. Uh, We think about David being the shepherd who goes out and kills the bear and the lion to protect the sheep and plays the harp and all this stuff. But that is not the whole story of David. David, in all of the good things he does, he's also a real person. And so there's a lot of messiness in what he does as well. And so we're going to pick up today starting uh, kind of right after David and Bathsheba. And if you don't know the story of David and Bathsheba, um, it's this fascinating story about this guy 
um, David, who's this king, he's this important figure in the Bible, but it's this story of when we don't make the right decisions and when we sometimes step out of line. And in 2 Samuel 11, 1, the story starts with this line where it says, when he was supposed to be off at war. And, and so what the story tells us from the beginning is that David's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be somewhere else, but yet he chooses to be in this moment. And in this story, we know that David has these mighty men. They're like his best friends. These are these warriors have gone to battle with him. And one of his closest was this guy named Uriah. But David, because he's the king and he's not used to being told no, one day he's not where he's supposed to be. He's out on the rooftop. He's looking out. He sees this woman bathing. He decides that he wants this woman. And because he's the king and he's supposed to be off at war, which means everybody that could have told him no is where he is supposed to be, off at war, and nobody's there to tell him no, he has this moment where he brings over this woman he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. So just think about all of this, right? I mean, this is a Jerry Springer episode, right? It's your best friend's wife. You get her over. You have this moment of weakness. And maybe it wasn't just a moment. Maybe it's an ongoing theme in David's life. But she gets pregnant. Now, in this moment, David has a freakout moment. He calls Uriah back. So from battle, one of his best friends, he calls him back from battle because he's trying to control the situation. And the way he wants to control it is that if Uriah comes back and he's with his wife um, in the way that you are in the Bible with your wife, you know, then what will happen is then she'll you know, think that when the baby comes that everybody will just think it's his and of crisis averted, right? And this is one of these kind of lessons we have to learn that sometimes we try to control situations that can't be controlled, Right? And rather than owning up to it, David tries to control the situation and it gets worse. Because Uriah comes back because Uriah is fiercely loyal to his men and his friends as David should have been. He refuses to sleep to his wife and he's got this great line. He's like, how can I go and be in the luxury of my home with my wife when my men are out to battle? And so it's like this amazing story where Uriah and his loyalty won't go do with it. So David kind of does this for a couple of times. And then David decides what he's going to do is he's going to get his best friend Uriah drunk, kind of spin him around, point him in the direction of home and say, go be with your wife. I mean, think about how low and like think in the thinking this is. And, and even in this moment, Uriah, um, he doesn't do it. He goes and he sleeps outside of his house rather than go and do this because of his loyalty to his men. And so in his final moment of desperation, David's like, well, I have to deal with the situation. I have to control the situation because that's what we try to do is control situations. And so he sends this letter back with Uriah to give to Joab. And in this letter, it says to go when uh, Uriah gets back to go and put Uriah on the front lines of battle. Now, if you know anything about these type of battles in the ancient world, I mean, these, these armies just go at each other. And if you were on the front line, it's almost a guaranteed death sentence. And so Uriah goes back to the battlefield carrying the note that essentially is his death sentence from one of his best friends. Now, think about this. Uriah would have done anything for David. So here is the man that, 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 you know, is after God's own heart, sending one of his best friends off. And so it's like this messy story of like, well, what do you, you do with this? And, and so there really isn't much of a resolution to this story. Like, like David doesn't really learn his lesson. There's some pain that comes out of this story and there's all of this stuff, but, but nothing really is ever said and just kind of like pretend like it didn't happen and it's just going to go away, which is what we like to do with uncomfortable things, right? Pretend like it didn't happen and it just goes away. 
But, but then there's this other problem. David has these, these kids. He's got lots of kids. And one of them is Amnon. And Amnon is David's oldest son. Now, Amnon, because he's the oldest son, is also in line to more than likely be the next king. But Amnon, like his father, has a thing for a girl, right? And it's not a good decision. Amnon has this thing for a girl. The problem is the girl is his half-sister, Tamar, right? Remember I said Jerry Springer? Okay, keep going in that line, all right? So he's got a thing for his half-sister named Tamar, and Amnon is obsessed with Tamar. So much so, and he, and he knows that like, he can't be with her because that's just weird, and there's all these things that would come out of this, and so he wants to be with her. And so Amnon one day decides to get close to Tamar. What he's going to do is he's going to pretend like he's sick. And so he's going to pretend like he's sick, and then he's going to request that Tamar bring over this special meal for him to eat to restore his health and to make him feel better. The problem is Amnon's not sick. He just wants to be around Tamar. And so he bring, Tamar brings over this special meal, and there's this moment where they get alone. And in this moment, Amnon realizes the opportunity is there, and, and he takes it. And it's like this, this situation where this, this man with power, he takes advantage of his half-sister. I mean, this unspeakable, I mean, this is so messed up. It's so messed up in, in the story, and it's so messed up that he would think that that's okay, and it's so messed up what happens to Tamar. Now, the problem is, in this story, is that in their culture, women did not have as much value as they do today. And thankfully, we've moved past the place where, and we're still getting to the place we really ultimately need to be. But, but in their culture, women had no voice. And so here's this moment where Tamar, all of this dignity has been stripped from her, from her half, by her half-brother. And it's like this moment when I think about this from David's perspective. Like, you're the king. You're their father, and you hear of this unspeakable, this tragic thing that should happen, that happened. And I'm thinking about David being the father of Tamar, and I think about like myself as a father, like it doesn't matter who it is, but like if someone did this to my daughter, how would I respond? And do you know how David responds in this moment? He does nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. And it doesn't say this, but I have to think, after what we just heard about David and Bathsheba, I'm sure in David's line of thinking, he's probably thinking, who is he to judge? Like, who is he to judge Amnon for what he's done? Because he knows what he himself has done. And it's like, by the way, like the worst parenting moment in history to do nothing in this moment. I'm gonna go on a rant for just a minute and you can disagree with my opinion, but it's okay to be wrong. And, and so this... This mentality by parents, and I see it all the time, and it, it literally just goes through me. This mentality to say, who am I to speak into this child's life when they make these decisions? Who are you? You're their parent. And there's like this mentality, but if I say something, they're going to rebel. What do you think they're doing right now? They're rebelling. What is this thing that we don't want to address, we don't want to talk about? And so who are you? You're their parent. And, and here's my understanding of what it is as a parent. We have been entrusted by God with these people. And we talk about influence all the time, to influence them, to help point them in the right direction, to help guide them in life. That is what we've been entrusted with by God. 
And so when we see our children going in a direction they shouldn't go, or when things come up, listen, and you have to take my word for it, okay? But think about when you were a teenager. Were you making the right decisions? Were you thinking through everything? I spent a week with middle schoolers, and the word I kept talking about was consequences. That we don't think about, even as adults oftentimes, the ideas and things that we do and the consequences of what's going to happen. I mean, think about this story we just read. What did Amnon think was going to happen? Answer, he wasn't thinking. And if you don't take my word for it, take the great philosopher Taylor Swift. Here's what she says. We've used it before. Because when you're 15 and somebody tells you they love you, you're going to believe them. Do you know why you're going to believe them, even though it's not true? Because you're 15. Now, Taylor Swift wrote this when she was a teenager, so don't be bad at me, okay? She understands I'm 15. I should not be making major life decisions at this point. Don't forget to look before you fall. And then she says this, I found that time can heal most anything. And you might just find who you're supposed to be. Not when you're 15, by the way, is what she would say. I didn't know who I was supposed to be at 15. And neither did you and neither do your kids. And so they need people that will step into their life and speak wisdom into their life. And I get it. Parents are unfair. I thought my mom was unfair. I thought my dad was unfair. But here's the thing. I had friends and still to this day have people that I know that I went to high school with and middle school with that their lives went in tragically different directions. And anytime my parents saw me about to go down that road, you know what they would do? They would cut it off real fast. And it seemed unfair at the time, but now that I'm raising kids, I get it. You need to speak wisdom into your kids' lives. You need to have the influence. And this is the story as we're going to see, because this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning of the story of what's going to happen. But this is the story that unfolds when no one steps in, no one corrects, and no one is held accountable for their choices. So back off my rant. So Tamar's life is now distraught. And honestly, in their culture, her life is over. There is no one that's going to step in and revive Tamar. I mean, she is used property at this point, and David's not going to step in. Her father's not going to step in. Nobody's going to do anything. And Amnon, here's what's crazy. He starts to realize how disgusting what he's done is. And so rather than try to, for, to get forgiveness or to restore Tamar, do you know what he does? He gets worse, and he treats her. He ignores her. He pushes her aside. He treats her even worse. Until one day, Absalom enters the story. Now, Absalom is another one of David's sons. It's his third son, but he's also Tamar's full brother, or, or full sister, or full brother. And so Absalom, he's David's third son, but he's also his favorite, and he's Tamar's sister. And so he finds out what's happened. And, and so he takes in his sister, because nobody else will, and he restores her, and he gives her hope again, and he meets all of her needs. But then he does nothing else for two years. For two years, Absalom is just there to make sure that Tamar heals. And then Absalom decides he's going to throw this big feast. This is an amazing story. You should read your Bible. And so he invites David, but David declines, but he invites everybody else to the feast, including Amnon. And so he gets everybody at the feast, and he's having this big party, and he's in this moment where he gets everybody really nice and drunk. He keeps the alcohol flowing. And there's one person in particular he wants to make sure drinks a lot, and that's Amnon. And when he realizes that Amnon has drunk as much as he can drink, drink, he gets up, he locks the door, and he slaughters Amnon in front of everyone. 
kills him to avenge his sister. Now think about this. So you have the future king that's just been killed by his, his other brother. And you're David. And there's all this drama going on. There's all of this mess that's going on. And the future king has now been killed by his favorite son. And so what are you going to do? What does David do? Nothing. For three years, Absalom, because he's afraid of what David might do, even though David's not going to do anything, and all of this madness, he runs away and he leaves. And David does nothing to try to restore the situation, to try to get people in the room to talk about the situation. Nothing happens. And after three years, David finally invites Absalom, his favorite son, and now one of the ones that's going to take the throne back. And so much has happened but nothing's been dealt with. Nothing's been talked about. Nothing's been addressed. And it's like this weird situation. And this drives Absalom crazy because he's like probably at this point realizing, hey, I probably shouldn't have slaughtered my brother in front of the whole kingdom. That probably wasn't a good idea. And so all of this craziness happens. And, and so Absalom turns to Joab, who we saw earlier in the story. And Joab is one of David's most respected advisors. And, and so he knows that David will send to Joab. So he gets him in a room and he tells him this out of the story. And he says, hey, all of this is going on. What do we do with this? And in 2 Samuel 14, Joab agrees that they're going to get this woman. She's going to go into this room and she's going to tell David this story. But the story is actually the story of David. We're just going to use different names and characters to kind of confuse him. And she tells David this story about this man who had all of these problems and he doesn't deal with any of them. And David, at the end of the story, gets furious because he's like, well, this guy should step in and he should do something about all this. And the woman's like, hey, David, that's you we're talking about that you are the one that should step in and you've done nothing. So David gets so upset that he sends the woman away and for two years, he refuses to speak to Absalom. And then there's this moment in the story where David invites Absalom into the kingdom one day and he takes him and he takes his hand and he puts it on his head. And in their culture, whenever the king would do this and he put his hand on someone's head, it's like this symbol of like relationship. It's a symbol of acceptance, of of being restored. And it looks like everything's going to be okay, but it's not. And for two more years, David does nothing. He never addresses Absalom, doesn't do anything, and this drives Absalom crazy. He makes him furious. So one day, Absalom, he has this idea. He says, hey, I'm next in line to be the king, so why don't I just go ahead and take this? My father clearly is not going to do anything. And so he does this brilliant thing. See, everybody in the kingdom, they want David to rule over their decisions because he's the king. And before there were kings, there were judges. So in their line of thinking, the king should be the one to help us make decisions. And so every day people would line outside the, the, the castle, the palace, to be able to have an audience of David to help him make a decision, help them make decisions about all kinds of different things in their lives. And David refused everybody. So Absalom gets a little table and he sits out in front of the palace gates and he sits there. And every single person that comes up, Absalom hears what they have to say. And every single person he talks to and he gives them a ruling and he helps the people. And David hears about this, that every day his son is sitting out there and doing his job for him. And what does David do? Nothing. And this goes on. And eventually it gets to the place where Absalom has won over the people. 
And there's this moment where David, he's told by his advisor, he says, hey, Absalom is trying to take your kingdom. He's wanting to be the king and he has the hearts and minds of all of the people. And so what are you gonna do, David? Nothing. And the Bible says that, that once he finds all this out and that Absalom has basically taken over the kingdom, that David, the king, leaves the palace to go into hiding. So Absalom becomes the king. There's a problem. One of the advisors one day walks up to Absalom. He says, hey, you know as long as David's alive, no one's really gonna view you as the king. And so Absalom decides he's gotta kill his father. And so Absalom goes out chasing after his father. Now think about this. Like this is, this, this is unreal, isn't it? Like this story of all of this heartache and pain and confusion And what would have happened if David, the king, but more importantly, David, their father, had stepped in at any point in time? And so this goes on for a while where Absalom's out to kill his father and he's chasing after him. But but what you have to remember about David, and the Bible's very clear on this, even though David's old, David's wise. And David is a skilled warrior. And David has men who are loyal to him. So the Bible tells us that even though Absalom has the entire army, David and his few mighty men are able to defeat Absalom and his army until one day Absalom goes off into the woods because he hears his father is camping out there. And out there in the woods, Absalom gets caught in a trap and killed. News makes it back to David that his son, who has taken his kingdom, has killed his other son and was trying to kill him, has died. And do you know what David does? Finally, he responds. 2 Samuel 18, he says this. Then the king was very upset and he went to the room over the city gate and cried. As he went out, he cried, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, I wish I had died and not you. Absalom, my son, my son. Do you see the irony in this? At any point, David could have stepped into the story. He could have ended it. He could have changed things. And now it gets to the point where his other son, now two sons are dead. And there's all this regret. All of this broken relationship, all of this torn lives, all of this hurting families. At any point, David could have stepped in and stopped it. Do you know how he could have stopped it? Because he's the king. You know what's even more important? He was their father. But he doesn't. And now all of this pain and all of this heartache and all of this confusion and all of this torn kingdom and torn lives and people's lives being ripped upside down, torn upside down, has happened. Now, I don't know what's happened in some of your lives. I don't know what's happened in some of your relationships. Even the most personal and close ones. But before it's too late, before more pain can be caused, before it goes too far, because this is a story of where it goes way too far. What we have to learn to do as fathers, as mothers, as people with authority, as people who love other people, is we have to learn to deal with these situations. We have to learn to step into these situations And maybe the most important thing that could have happened at any point in this story that never even gets mentioned is we have to learn to forgive. 
See, I know the irony of Father's Day is that for some of us, when we think of our fathers, we don't think of good things, do we? Some of us, because of the relationships in our past, or, or maybe here's the thing, for some of us in this room, we are the fathers who are causing the pain for our children. And forgiveness is this interesting idea that when stuff happens, because stuff always happens, and life is a mess, and we all do things to hurt each other, but this idea of forgiveness, it's this thing that we yearn for. I mean, like as you read that story, and, and like I said, it took 15 years, you can just sit into 15 minutes, but here's the thing. There's all of these moments in this story where it's like Amnon and Absalom and Tamar, like they're, they're pleading for it. They're pleading for this moment, like, let's sit down and let's deal with the situation. It's a terrible one, but let's deal with it. See, I think what's interesting about this idea of forgiveness is forgiveness is this ultimate idea we see from the Bible where something happens to us and a debt is owed. And because something is owed to us and we don't know how to respond to it, our natural response is to get revenge, to hurt people the way that they've hurt us. Now, let me ask you the question. Does revenge ever really work? No, it just makes things messier. It just makes things worse. Forgiveness is this idea of canceling the debt. Now, the immediate pushback for most of us is, well, forgive, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what they've taken from me. You don't know what they've stolen from me. I mean, some of us, when we think about it, we think about the years that we can't get back. But forgiveness is this thing where we say, okay, we're not making light of it, but, but listen, and no one deserves to be treated the way that some of us have been treated. No one deserved what Tamar got, not a single person. But how long are we going to carry this stuff with us? And how long are we going to let the pain of what someone's done to us influence and affect the way we treat other people? Some of us, when we think about our past, we have this stuff that we want to put behind us, but we can't. And it feels like we can't. And the question we have to answer is this, and only you can answer this. How long are you going to carry it? One of my favorite quotes from Anne Lamont is this, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. I mean, think about this story that we just heard. Think about all of the pain that David experiences. Think about all of the pain that Absalom experiences. Because they couldn't sit down and figure it out. They couldn't forgive. And so it gets worse and worse and worse. Now, maybe for some of you, you're hoping that like Absalom, that revenge will satisfy. But let's be honest, revenge always escalates, right? You know, it never, it never is even. You stole my Twinkie. I stabbed you in the face, right? That's where it goes, right? I mean, have you ever really gotten revenge and even the odds and you felt good about it? Or you felt like it was over? It never fully and finally satisfies. And so here are some practical things. And like I said, I know that maybe your story isn't quite like the story of David, I hope, because that's a messed up one, all right? But we all have pain and we all have wounds in our life. And so here's some things to think about. When it comes to learning to forgive and not letting things escalate to the point that it gets like this unbelievably unreasonable thing, here's the first thing you have to do. You have to call out what was done to you. You have to call out specifically the wound that happened to you. See, sometimes what happens when we let time goes by, you ever heard the expression, time heals all wounds? No. A lot of times what happens when time happens and there's no calling it out, it becomes bigger in our mind than it ever even was. Or now we get all of these other people involved and so now there's all these people involved in this situation that could have been resolved with just a few of us. So you have to call out exactly what was happened to, happened to you. What was taken from you? How were you wronged? 
what was said, what was done specifically. You have to call out exactly what happened to you. Because here's the thing, if you go to that person and you want to try to get forgiveness or to seek forgiveness or to have them, whatever it is, you have to be able to say exactly what they did to you. The second thing is, and this is the hard one, you have to call it out and then you have to accept the fact that it happened. Realize that the hurt you have right now, the pain that you have, that it actually happened. And with this step, you need to get the help that you need. You need to get counseling, therapy. You need to get whatever it is that you need in your life, but you have to accept the fact that it actually happened. And then when it comes to forgiveness, when truly forgiving, and this is the most painful part, is you have to absorb it. You cannot let what happened to you be the thing that drives all the decisions in your life because you will hurt yourself and you will hurt other people. Tim Keller says this, it's really awful to absorb the wrong things others have done to you, but on the other side of death is new life. He goes on to say this, in all cases when wrong is done, there is a debt and there's no way to deal without it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it as we saw today, or you forgive and you suffer for it yourself. Forgiveness is always extremely costly. It is emotionally very expensive. It takes much blood, sweat, and tears. And so what we have to learn to do rather than get revenge is to learn to forgive. C.S. Lewis says this, because I know some of you are pushback. is like, well, you don't know what they've done to me. Well, here's what C.S. Lewis says. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Andy Stanley says this, In the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy, but in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. So when we learn to forgive and deal with the situations that have been handed to us, we're just offering what God has already given me. Now, let's be real practical, because there are some people in life that are so toxic and so hurtful that they're just gonna keep doing what they've always done. There's this great proverb in the Bible that says, like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. Listen, you don't have to keep returning to that person. If they're hurting you, you need to get away. Some people are so toxic and destructive that they're gonna wrong us over and over and over again. And so what you need to do is learn to forgive, but also set up boundaries. You don't need to be around that person. You don't have to be around that person. Some people are going to return to their vomit and we don't have to be there when they do. So what we have to learn is to set up boundaries with some people. Say, what you've done to me, listen, I forgive you, but it will always matter. And it will always change the way that we're able to interact with each other. I think the ultimate point of this story is think about all of the pain and heartache that we saw today. Think about your life. All of the pain and heartache in your life. See, I think the important thing about forgiveness is this, is that when we think about forgiveness, we often think that we're letting other people free. But when we learn to forgive, what I actually think we're doing is setting ourselves free. So if you're still carrying all of this stuff around, you weren't meant to carry it around. God didn't create us to carry this stuff around. And I know on days like today, it should be a day of celebration. You're like, what a great sermon to bring us all down, Jeremy, right? (laughs) But here's the thing. As fathers, 
as men, as parents, as authority figures, we have to learn to do this, preach this ourselves, but also learn to forgive. We have people that are looking up to us to lead. At any point in time, David could have stepped in, and he didn't. May that be the lesson for us, to step in, to deal with the situations, to learn to forgive, to teach others to forgive. May we as men, moms, dads, uncles, anybody with authority, learn to lead the way we're supposed to lead, to be the people God has called us to be, and to influence those that we've been entrusted with.